Good morning, everyone. My name is not Dorothy, and I am an alcoholic. No, my name is Maliki. Dorothy uh, S. was the person who had been invited to uh, come to this meeting this morning, and for different reasons she couldn't. And I suppose I mention this because I know some of you, Joe R. called me, Joe R., chef de cuisine and all that stuff. Uh, bumped into him uh, a couple of weeks ago in Gulf Shores. Alabama, we were together the Gulf Shores Roundup, and John and Nell and a few other good people were there. And uh, Joe was telling me that he had in mind to chair this convention next year, and that he had in mind to invite me and my wife to come next year. And uh, then last week he called me and asked me if I could come this weekend. And I kind of said, well, Joe, that's powerful, the course, because a few years ago you called me and asked me to come to be the voice of the convention. And I said, yes. And that very same weekend we had the closing on our home in Lafayette, Louisiana, so I couldn't come. So it seems, Joe, each time that you make plans and invite me to come, God has got other ideas, <laughs> which is oftentimes how it is. Um, this weekend has been an incredible gift to me. I needed to be here. I needed to be with you. It's a privilege to see so many familiar faces again and then to meet some new friends. Uh, yesterday you had an absolute blast. Uh, drove in late, late Friday night. In the back of my mind was, well, I meet someone here who knows anything about Beanie Babies. And uh, I bumped into Lou and I said to Lou, I said, do you know anything about Beanie Babies? And she said, not really. So I kind of scratched her off my list straight away. Uh, but she says, I know who might, and then we kind of didn't say anything more about that. And then I bumped into Beryl. And I said to Beryl, you know anything about Beanie Babies? And she said, well, a little. And then behind the scenes, she and Lou put their heads together, and I think they figured out three or four places here in Ruston that do have Beanie Babies. So yesterday afternoon, I thought I was going to take off with Beryl and get some Beanie Babies, and I ended up with two very, very interesting characters from Natchez. They call themselves Natchezians uh, by the name of Chase and Glenn. And I'm kind of grateful that I'd met Glenn earlier in the day, yesterday. Uh, if you haven't met him yet, I think you deserve a treat before the weekend is over. Otto was a treat last night, but you deserve another treat. I'm in, in the bathroom yesterday, taking care of what I call was my business and minding what I thought was my own business. And the door flies open. And in comes this character rubbing his rather ample middle. saying, God, that food was good. He says, I feel like a a tick <laughs> on a blue tick hound dog and he says all I'd need right now is find myself a tree he said and go out in that sunshine roll over pull up my shirt and let that warm sun just hit on my belly and I'd be happy and I'm just standing there listening to this and I got my answer because oftentimes I wonder why is it that God asks me to be in a particular place at a particular time. And why was it this weekend that he invited me to come to Ruston? I suppose I just meet, needed to meet Glenn and be educated a little bit more as to the significance of full ticks and 
blue tick hound dogs. Woo! He's going off and among other things, yeah. And that has a lot to do with my recovery. Because a few years ago, I wouldn't even have wanted to have been interested in someone like Glenn. I'd have been totally self-absorbed. Glenn told me yesterday God gave him life, which he did obviously today, celebrating 13 months today. God is good. And I want to thank you, Glenn and Chase and Beryl, for coming into my life yesterday. I really do. And you've made a little girl very happy, because yesterday in our travels, I picked up 19 more Beanie Babies. There's got to be a 12-step program somewhere for Beanie Baby lovers. Those who have loved uh, too much or whatever. Anyway, I'm very grateful to the committee for inviting me. Very grateful for the huge fruit basket that was in my room. And now that I've got that out of the way, I'd also like to say when I hear us applaud at these gatherings, we might applaud uh, the message of a particular speaker or a funny anecdote or whatever. I like to think that what we are doing when we applaud is that we're applauding the God of my understanding who is so good to us and who gives us the gift of sobriety and serenity. So I'd like us at this time, maybe one more time, to say thank you and to applaud the God of my understanding for his goodness to us. I was not born, my friends, as I told somebody yesterday. They asked where Dublin was. And I said, I think it's somewhere between Shreveport and Bossier, right there in between. <laughs> no, not North Louisiana. North. I live in Tupelo, Mississippi, either because God has a sense of humor or uh, because of something that I may choose to tell you a little later on. But I was born in Dublin, Ireland, the second of four children. My recollection of alcohol, my friends, was always good. It did wonderful things for me. When we were little children, we'd have the runs or the trots or diarrhea. My mother's cure for that was to get some hot milk, grate some nutmeg, and pour a shot of Irish whiskey or brandy into it. And we were supposed to drink that, and what it was supposed to do was to bind up our stomachs. And it did. Oh, I felt wonderful having that stuff just coursing through me. I felt warm and safe and content, and I tried to have the trots as often as I could. <laughs> and, and I suppose that is definitely me looking for the effect. I don't know if I was alcoholic in those days. I don't even go there trying to figure out, was I one? When I was born, did I become how, blah, 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 blah. All I know is that I'm one of those people that when I took a drink, it was never enough. And it brought me to strange places. And I created a lot of havoc in other people's lives. And I found out when I wanted to stop, I couldn't. I couldn't. Oh, I tried. Many times I tried to stop on my own. Never did work. I also was raised, um, as many young Irish people were in those days, I was raised in the Roman Catholic tradition in Ireland, and I was an altar server, so I became very familiar with altar wine, and it was wonderful stuff. 
either blessed or unblessed. It didn't really matter to me. Uh, It just was wonderful. And whenever the sacristan or the church people were not watching, what I tried to do was to grab the bottle and take a swig when I was about this high, or when there were those cruets with some left over in it, the wine cruets, I'd empty it out, and I just felt wonderful, and I felt safe, and I felt good. I loved what it did for me. And every time I drank or had something to drink in those days, even when I was much younger, the one thing I remembered was how I felt. It worked wonders for me. I could be anything I wanted to be. I could go anywhere in my mind I wanted to go. I could be anything I wanted to be. It became the life and soul of everything. Growing up, I never felt a part of, I never felt like I fit anywhere. But if I had a drink, I could be anything you wanted me to be. <laughs> and I could be anything I wanted to be. That was wonderful. Booze was my friend. I don't remember too much of growing up besides that. I'm kind of envious of those who seem to remember their childhood and everything else associated with it. Still frames in the movie of life just glimmers to me. I do know at one stage I went off to college and I went to the seminary and uh, I was ordained a Roman Catholic priest in 1971. And that's how I came to the city of New Orleans in those days. Was I a nice, responsible member of the clergy? First three months in the city of New Orleans, I didn't drink. Because my mother exacted a promise from me before I came over here, and it was, promise me, son, that you will never drink and bring shame on this family. Looking back, I I can understand why she asked that, because... Long before I came on the scene, I think it had something to do with my dad. He was alcoholic. I'm able today, because of you, not to blame him or blame my mother for anything. Or it used to be very convenient. You know, feeling like I had a deprived childhood and blah, blah, blah. And I realized, you know, I'm not an alcoholic today because of anything my parents were. You know? When I took that first drink... It took the second one, and it took the third one. Nobody made me. It had a life of its own. I do know today that my parents loved me the way they loved me. Was that enough? Well, you know, I'm an alcoholic, so when I measure things, I could be wrong. I could be. They loved me in the way that they loved me. They loved me with what they were. Was it enough? That's not even a fair question. Enough by whose standards? Mine? I never have enough. (laughs) So my first three months in New Orleans, I didn't drink. Oh, I'd go out with friends and drink soft drinks. They'd have Jack Daniels and Coke and Dixie beer in those days and Falstaff and Jack's for the dedicators, you know. All kinds of mixes and one day I got tired of that. I missed the fun. And when I had my first glass of scotch in the city of New Orleans, I found all my answers. And so was I a responsible member of the clergy after I started drinking? I guess not. 
I started ending up in places I really had no business ending up in and associating with people that normally I might not associate with and sharing meaningful moments. And if you're wondering what that means, I know we're told that in a general way we tell what it used to be like and if you've got an imagination, that's your problem. Okay. I was at breakfast this morning with Chris, my good friend. We go back a long ways together. Mm, probably ten, maybe ten years, Chris, when we first met. And Chris was then very young in sobriety. Chris at breakfast this morning was saying to me, because he was talking about my journey in the ministry, and he was kind of wondering, he's very delicate, you know, a curious alcoholic, and he's saying to me, you know, how did you as a member of the clergy, how did you manage the temptations of the flesh? And I said, I never really thought of it that way. I suppose I managed rather well. And then he said to me, but what about your Roman collar? I said, well, I never wore it when I was having sex. And that's about all I'm going to say about that. At least to my knowledge. Okay. Although I was a blackout drinker. I did get into a lot of trouble, my friends. I tell you, within six months of beginning to drink in New Orleans, I became a noon drinker. Within a year, I was a morning drinker. Took off with it. There was no easing in with me. And I remember barely at times getting into scrapes and problems and someone bailing me out or covering for me or... Maybe God-loving fools and drunks. I don't know what that was all about. But after two years of ripping and roaring in New Orleans, I was called in by the powers that be and they told me, we're moving you. No one mentioned alcoholism in those days, in the early 70s. You know, all I knew was that I was beginning to loathe myself, hate myself hate what I was becoming and where I was ending up and saying to myself, I'll never be like my father. And and the band played on. They told me they were moving me to a place called La Rose, Louisiana. For those of you who are familiar with South Louisiana, it's way down there on the way to Grand Isle on Bayou Lafouche. So they sent me to La Rose... If there was a place farther south or west at the time, it would have been found for me. But it seemed it was the only opening. And I went to that community with a massive resentment. I said to myself, I'm going to make life so miserable for these people. They're going to call headquarters in New Orleans and get me back to where I belong. Didn't work that way. They loved me. They loved me. I think back, none of that I deserved, but they loved me. 1974, I was first introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous in a somewhat indirect way. Two people came to visit with me. 
I don't remember one, but I do obviously remember the other, and uh, John and Nell and many others like us know who I'm talking about. Joe R. Not the Joe R. here, but Joe R. in Golden Meadow. Cajun Joe. He came to visit with me. And they invited me to come to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I couldn't go. They didn't suggest to me that I was alcoholic. But they said, maybe you can come and see what we do. Couldn't go. Because, you see, my greatest fear was that if I went there, someone might see my automobile and think I was one of you. And I wasn't like that. And I know the next two years must have rambled on. This was 1974. I don't really remember too much of anything. I was a blackout drinker. As I mentioned, I do remember October 11th, and I know it had to be that date, 1979, rolling around. I don't remember too much in the meantime. I knew I was there, but I don't remember. It's like a fog. All I do know is going to different stores in rotation every morning to pick up a fifth, saying if I go to different stores different days, they won't remember who I am. And after a while, I'd walk in the door, and they're putting the fifth up on the counter. And a part of me was thinking, this is wonderful service. <laughs> and the other part was the horror of the alcoholic. They know. They know. It was like I thought they could see right through me. And I couldn't stand that, and of course I'd have to drink some more. But October 11, 1979, rolled around my then boss. His Catholic bishop called me in Bishop Boudreaux, and he said... I'd like to talk to you like a brother. He was kind. Went to visit with him in his home in Bayou Blue. When I walked in his door, I remember counting them. There were 11 other people in that room with him. And something told me that all was not well. <laughs> it didn't seem like a social visit. And of course, in my arrogance, and some of you know this, when I counted them, there were 12 of them and me, and I came to the conclusion that it was Jesus and the 12 apostles. And I don't have to tell you whom I thought Jesus was. You know, and... He basically confronted me about my drinking. He said, you drink too much. And for the first time in my life, I admitted to another human being I drank too much. No one was talking alcoholism still. But later on, I found out when he spoke to me, I was 260 pounds. And I was dying on my feet and didn't know it. And he said to me, will you accept help? And help sounded good. I didn't know what that meant, but I loathed myself so much. I mean, thoughts of suicide were my constant friend. But I never did anything about that in those days because of the quote-unquote stigma or religious stigma attached to it, you know. And fear of bringing shame on the family, quote-unquote, and all that stuff that I was raised with. So I didn't. But they sent me off to treatment, but I was still a reluctant participant because I went there to that treatment center up in Minnesota only because I had to go. I don't remember too much for the first ten days. It was like a Librium-induced fog trying to get me down without going into the DTs. And I was told afterwards that I'd just argue, I'd argue, I'd argue, I'd argue. And I know none of you ever did that with anybody. But I'd argue. I was the youngest person there. 
person nearest in age to me was 32 years older. I thought I was in the wrong place. They'd say to me, you're going to be here for a while. I'd say, oh, no. I'm just going to get a handle on this and figure out, you know, how to handle my drinking because the stress and all you understand. And they told me I'd be there for a while and I'd say, you're a lot older than I am. You need a lot more help than I do. And uh, that was me. And then I remember vaguely going to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was like in a large room and tables like this. And I saw him down at the end of the table. I always found a him somewhere. And this him, his name was Art, and he looked like an alcoholic, as I thought, you know, wrinkled and baggy-eyed and red eyes, and he'd talk and he'd go, you know, and I'd say, oh, God, you know. And he said his name was Art, and I canonized him as Art the Fart within ten seconds. And I always found someone to focus my anger on at these meetings. And was I teachable? You talk to me about this being a spiritual program. Blew my fuse entirely. You talk to me about a spiritual program, Roman collar or not, depending. I believed I had the direct line. I didn't need you. And you loved me. I stayed in that place for three months. What it did for me was it exposed me to Alcoholics Anonymous, to people who loved freely. Was I able to let you love me? No. I was scared to death. It was fear. My fear was that if, you, if I let you in, you might discover who I was. I couldn't stand that. I heard Otto last night talking about denial and delusion. Oh, denial, yeah. I'd lie. I mean, I can still do it with a straight face and not even think about it. It's familiar. I came back to La Rose, Louisiana. I went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous because it became part of the job description. You will go to meetings. So I went to meetings. In those early days, I didn't get a sponsor. Why would I need a sponsor? Hmm. I resented the hell out of you. You asking me, do you have a sponsor, Malachi? It was none of your business. Eventually, I did ask someone to be my sponsor. Leonard Kay from Morgan City, Louisiana. I asked Leonard because he had shaken himself in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous 20 years before. And I'd been to treatment. So I'm different. I could look down my nose at him, you see. He just one of these people that kind of, they let in. God, how sick. And Leonard loved me. Did I use him? Oh, yeah, I used him. Did I utilize him as a sponsor? Well, I guess not. He was one of those. I heard Otto and others talking this weekend about us having a disease of perception. Absolutely. I have the disease of being different. I am different. I'm not like you. I'm not that bad. You don't understand. Get out of my face. Who needs you? Everything was wonderful until you came along. I'm different. I went to those meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous down by Lafouche. My sponsor today tells me that many people grew in love 
and tolerance in those days? Because I'd go to those meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, you would read how it worked. And I believed for the rest of the meeting that God called me to tell you how it really worked. And so my sponsor today tells me, Maliki, many of us grew in love and tolerance in those days. Because I believe that God gives at least one like you to each group so that we can grow. (laughs) And I know that does not happen in Ruston or in any of the surrounding communities. I know it doesn't. I went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous for four years. And then I stopped going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Did I work these steps? Well, I guess not. Those were for people like you that couldn't follow directions. (laughs) First step for me was, uh, oh no, not we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. That step was sometimes I was willing to admit that I drank too much, and when I drank too much I got into trouble. But I was not powerless. Because, you see, I'd listen to you, and you'd talk about, you know, going to jail. I'd never been to jail except to visit. You'd lost homes. I'd never lost a home. You talked about losing wives and partners. I hadn't lost any wife or partner that I was aware of. Yeah. You talked about losing jobs. I hadn't lost a job. I'm different. God, you poor people. Oh. But I went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous for those four years because it became part of the job description. And then, of course, I became pastors of God knows how many communities and tribunal judge and chancery official and titles coming out the wazoo or out that place Otto was describing last night, you know, the pus. Yeah. And I was cured. And I stopped going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous because I'd carried the message to you long enough and now it was up to you to do something with it, you see. Sick. And I kept getting sicker and sicker. You see, I'd hear you talking about alcoholism. I could never get beyond alcohol. What are you talking about alcoholism? That this is an emotional illness and that you become spiritually bankrupt and... Huh? What's all this stuff? I didn't want to hear you. But I kept growing more resentful and more resentful and more resentful and more resentful. I was a walking ball of rage. And good people would confront me about my behavior in the church communities where I was pastoring. And you know what I would tell them? Don't forget who's got the microphone this weekend. And what I did, my friends, is I shredded the lives of a lot of good people in those days. Because in a small community, you don't have to mention names. A whisper, a nod, a wink. Silence. Alcoholism is not a nice disease. We don't tiptoe through the tulips or prance among the primroses. It says we roar like a tornado through the lives of others. That period of dryness for me for five years was very necessary in my journey of recovery just to tell me how horrible this illness untreated is. It's not about not drinking. You know, I can train our cats, our monkeys, or whatever not to drink. But if I'm an alcoholic and all I do is not drink, I become a rageful, loathsome human being very sick, very wounded, and I'm like a wounded animal. And what does a wounded animal do when it's attacked? 
it attacks. And I was like an attacked dog. And then I went over to Ireland late summer of 1984. Visited with my sister. And for those of you who believe there's such a thing as non-alcoholic beer, I need to disagree with you. You see, the non-alcoholic beer label says less than 1%, which means more than 0%. There was a six-pack of O'Doul's in my sister's refrigerator. I saw them. I said, well, non-alcoholic. I drank all six in the course of a period of time and went to the bathroom. I was looking for the effect. didn't do anything for me. I'm an alcoholic. I like to change how I feel. So let me use something or use somebody to change how I feel. That didn't work. I'm sitting on the plane in London, getting ready to come back. Stewardess approaches me and says, well, you have something to drink. I said, I'll have a double beef eater and tonic. Didn't bat an eyelid. Gin. Had three or four of those, feeling good about life, and then a light went off in my brain, which was, you people put me through hell. You told me that if I took that first drink, I would get drunk. And here I am after four doubles, and I'm feeling perfectly in control, thank you. And then I thought about it some more while I ordered another double. And another light went off in my brain, which was, you're not an alcoholic at all. You've lived a lie for these past five years. I come back stateside, don't drink anything. This is the control piece, you understand. And the following week, I find myself in the Broadwater Beach Motel in Biloxi, Mississippi. That was before it became casinos and all that on the coast. And soft lights and linen tablecloths. Where's the linen tablecloth? Okay. Linen tablecloths, pretty waitresses, nice music. What do you have to drink? I ordered a double. Had a few more doubles. And then another light went off in my brain, which was, instead of paying hotel prices for mixed drinks, much cheaper to go buy a fifth and mix your own. And then, my friends, the real horror began. And if any of us here today have not relapsed, only by God's grace, I would believe, if you've not relapsed, then all I can tell you is, for me, that when I did actually relapse with the drinking, I mean, the behavior was already totally crazy, yeah. But when I started drinking, the horror for me was it became unpredictable. I couldn't get drunk anymore. I could drink a fifth and sit here eyeballing you. I could drink one drink and go into a blackout. I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't stay sober like it tells us. I couldn't. And I'd stop and I'd start and I'd only drink in the evenings and, you know, all that stuff. And then from trying to hide it, oh God, same old games. And good people kept distancing themselves from me. One just hung in there with me. He'd visit from time to time. He'd say, you're killing yourself. I could tell him, I know. They said, you need to do something. First week in November 1985, I called my boss and I told him I was leaving. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't even know if I wanted to live. I just wanted to leave. Just go. 
And he said, do what you need to do. He was tired too, but he said, before you go, why don't you make a phone call? This is God's grace to me, my friends. Two years before, in 1983, I'd been at a gathering similar to something like this. And the person who spoke, I'll use his last name, he's since gone home to God, Hillary Draper, or Father Hillary, from Coleman, Alabama. He was the speaker, and whatever he said touched me. I don't know what he said, but it touched me. And I went up to him after the meeting in 83, when I was still dry and miserable, and said to him, one of these days I'd like to come visit you in Coleman, Alabama. I had no idea where Coleman was. I'd been saying things to him. I had no intention of saying. And all he did was he reached in his wallet, he took out his card, he put it in my hand, and he said, when you are ready, come. No more. It's the simple message of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you want what we have, come. I obviously told my boss about that conversation with Hillary Draper. And here I am two years later telling my boss I'm leaving. And he says, well, before you go, why don't you call that man in Cullman, Alabama? God's grace. I called him. He answered the phone. And across the silence of two years... I said, Hillary, this is Malachi. And there was a pause. And all I heard him say across the silence of two years was, Are you ready? I said, Of course I'm ready. He said, Good, come. And he hung up. No directions. No limousine, no chauffeur. I looked on the map, I found that Coleman was 454 miles due northeast of where I was living at the time. We had a farewell reception in those two communities where I was pastoring. There was a huge turnout. I'm not quite too certain even today why. Some may have been there very grateful, but for different reasons. Some may be making sure that, yes, I was actually leaving. <laughs> but I left those two communities fully with the intention one day driving of getting to Cullman, Alabama. And what I did, my friends, was I had a drink somewhere between where I was living and the interstate in New Orleans. Went into a blackout. I parked my car at the airport in New Orleans. I flew to New York in the blackout. Flew to Ireland in the blackout. Stayed with my mother five days in the blackout. Crossed over to France. Stayed overnight in Paris in the blackout. And I came out of that blackout a week later. Room in Venice, Italy. That's a slight detour from Cullman, Alabama. Believe me. And I had absolutely no idea how I got there. All I knew in that room with me were the four hideous horsemen that we talk about. Terror, bewilderment, frustration and despair. And I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do, except that somehow, some way, I needed to get back to Cullman, Alabama. Came back across Europe, still drinking. I must have had a death wish. Came across the ocean, I presume. I remember Thanksgiving Day, 1985, falling in the door of friends in Long Island, New York. Drunk. And they put me down in the basement, and afterwards they told me they fully expected me to die. 
I got down to New Orleans somehow, some way, and I do remember arriving in Cullman, Alabama, December 3rd, 1985. And it's been a day at a time since. I got to Cullman, Alabama that evening. I saw Hillary the following morning. And those of you who knew him, he was a man of substance. If you put him sideways, you would not mark him absent. He visited with me a little while. He told me, I'll put a food on the table, I'll put a roof over your head, and you will go to meetings. And those of us who knew Hillary Draper knew that he did not invite. Usually what he said came out in the form of a directive or a command, you know. And he said, uh, I'm going to assign this Catholic monk to work with you. His name was Malachi also. Malachi Shanahan, since gone home to God. Malachi at the time was 14 years sober. He had Parkinson's. Oftentimes he couldn't go to meetings. I would become his meeting. I went to meetings sometimes three times a day, I kid you not. That was one of the reasons I lived there. You will go to meetings. So I went to meetings downtown Coleman and Boaz and Arab and Anianta and Huntsville and Decatur and Montgomery for area assembly and I was just thrown into the whole thing. And I'd meet with Malachi Shanahan on a regular basis and he began to walk me through the 12 steps in order for someone like me. And after about three months of all of that, I was beginning to feel my oats and beginning to feel wonderful. And I'd start arguing with him and I would say, when is this going to get better? You keep saying it's going to get better. When's it going to get better? And he'd say, I've got two questions for you. The first question is, did you take a drink today? And I'd say, no. And he said, did you get in trouble today? And I'd say, no. And then he'd say, well, for an alcoholic, you are having a great day. <laughs> he challenged me when I would have these, what I would call intellectual orgasms. You know, just, I'd start thinking. And I'm the kind of alcoholic that if I look in the mirror long enough, I will swoon. I love what I see when I look in a mirror. And I know none of you are like that, if you're alcoholic. I lived there six months. Became immersed in the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. I came to you because I had nowhere else to go. I kept coming to you because I had nowhere else to go. And then I kept coming to you because I could start letting you love me. And there are people in Coleman, Alabama that are God's gift to me and still are. They're human beings. They're not perfect. They're messengers of God's grace to me. They're saying, Malachi, if you ask your God in the morning and you thank him at night, there's going to be hope for you. These people came from a whole bunch of different religious backgrounds. I'm still in the Roman Catholic tradition at times, and, and here am I meeting people who come from very, very diverse religious backgrounds. Baptist and Presbyterian, Episcopal, as they say in Alabama. Church of Christ. Pleasure. The timing was interesting. Um, 
Okay. But I found in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous none of that mattered. The freedom that you gave me in Alcoholics Anonymous was that I could start to have a relationship with the God of my understanding. North Alabama AA taught me that God was not Catholic. And I also discovered there that he wasn't Baptist, and that also helped. Yeah. I learned with you that my God loves me. He doesn't say I will love you if. I learned with you that my God forgives me, not that he will forgive you if. And I also learned with you that I do not need anybody's permission to walk with my God. I do not need anybody's permission to walk with my God. Because with you and growing with you, gratefully with you, it's like I began to feel free. And then I still remained conflicted inside. I came back to where I was living at the end of May 1986. Leonard Kay's wife, Enola, called me. And she said, Malachi Leonard is dying. He was my first sponsor, my window dressing sponsor. The one that I would not utilize because I looked down my nose at him. He was the one that loved me enough that a few weeks short of my dry fifth birthday in Alcoholics Anonymous, when I'd relapsed with the O'Douls and all that other stuff, he called me a few days after my quote-unquote fifth birthday, which it should have been, but wasn't. And he said, I missed you at the meeting. I have your five-year chip for you. What did I decide to do? Do you think I would tell him that I had relapsed? I went over to his place of business in Morgan City, at a jeweler's store. could walk in the front door and see him all the way to the back. I often wondered about that, but he told me he had a clear shot. If someone came in the front door to rob the place, he could just in the back go, boom, you know. He was sitting there in the back. I went back to him. He looked at me. I looked at him. I knew that he knew. He knew that I knew. But he took that chip out of his pocket. He put it in my hand. I said, keep coming back, Malachi, it'll get better. He didn't judge me and say, you've relapsed, you don't deserve this. He gave me the freedom to be dishonest. He gave me the freedom to be alcoholic. I went to visit Leonard that last day of May 1986. He was lying on a sofa in his living room dying of cancer. We were quiet for long periods of time and he'd look at me and he'd say, Malachi, I want you to make me a promise. When I die, I want you to get a sponsor and this one you will work with. And I promised him. He died the following day, June 1st. I buried him June 3rd. I felt very empty. Came back from Morgan City. Remember, I'm only six months sober. Came back to Homa, Louisiana, where I was staying. Went to a meeting of alcoholics that evening at 5.30. Because I knew if I didn't come to you, I would die. And at the meeting, the chairperson asked, does anyone here have a problem related to our illness? And I said, I think I do. I need a sponsor. I thought everybody was going to jump up and volunteer. Nobody did. 
After the meeting, they came to me and talked with me and gave me numbers, invited me for coffee and all that. On the way home later on that evening after the meeting, the memory of a man I'd known that came to visit me back in 1974 and who subsequently would attend many meetings I attended down the bayou, the one who used to tell me, Malachi, in those days many of us grew in love and tolerance. I called him. I had not spoken to him in a few years. And all he said to me was, Welcome home, Malachi. I've been waiting for your call. Sponsors are strange creations. I don't know. I used to think I had a direct line. Sometimes I'm convinced that God consults with sponsors. Mm -hmm. See, what can we do for the person who's still suffering? I believe that. And so I asked Joe R. Cage and Joe to be my sponsor, and he said yes, and that's been a day at a time since. Oh, Lord, thank God for him and others like him, many, many. And as the result of Joe R., I met people like the ones I've mentioned today. John and Nell, W., used to live in Natchez, Natchezians, and now live in Dauphine Island, Alabama. Nell is a long-time serving member of Al-Anon. John and I probably converse more. John's a gift in my life, I need to say that. Because he has that quiet strength that reminds me so much of my sponsor. I can feel safe with people like John W. I could never say that years ago. And you know what I'm saying. All I have to do is to be with some of you. And I'm safe. My God is with me. It is okay. And that's sometimes all I know. Some of the highlights, if I can call them that, that interesting journey of sobriety. Many. They appointed me pastor again. They decided to trust me. One more time. But there was tremendous conflict within me. Sometime in 1988, that's what, about 11 years ago, I wrote an article which was entitled, Everyone is Welcome at the Table. I'm just telling you about my journey, my friends. Whatever your journey is with your God is yours. And thank God for it. But my journey in the Roman Catholic tradition in those days, it was difficult for me to accept that If people were divorced and remarried, outside the church, as it was called, that's kind of to me like out in a field somewhere, outside the church, uh, that they could not come to communion. But you see, that's like saying to uh, Glenn of the blue tick hound dog fame, that's like saying to Glenn, you are welcome, and to Malachi, you are not. I don't understand that kind of a God. My God does not make distinctions. And I don't need anybody's permission to walk with my God. So everybody where I pastored was welcomed. And that kind of created a little excitement in some circles. (laughs) And I talked to my sponsor about it. And I say, Joe, what am I going to do? I feel so conflicted. I'm asked to represent this God, but this is the God I walk with. What am I going to do? And he'd look at me kindly and he'd say, Malachi, trust God. Clean house. The answers will come. 
And I know he grieved too because, and we've talked about it since, because he was raised in the Roman Catholic tradition and that's very important to him. And it was important to him to be linked in my life as a Roman Catholic priest in those days. And, and I know it created conflict for Joe. I know it did. But he loved me. And he loved me enough not to give me answers. He loved me enough to offer solutions. And when I get really, really, really perturbed, he'd say, Maliki, you have a bad dose of the rids. I'd say, what the heck are the rids? And he'd say, well, restless, irritable, and discontent. You've got a bad dose of the rids. And I'd say, well, what? And he'd say, whenever you get to feeling like you have a bad dose of the rids, there's only one question you need to ask. And I said, well, what question is that? And he said, well, who is not doing it your way? And he said, and each time you get restless, irritable, and discontent, it is usually because, Glenn, you know, the wrong tick is on the wrong hound dog or something, or it ain't doing what it's supposed to be doing. You know what I mean? Simple wisdom. But eventually I got to the point where I needed to move on. And of course there was a lot of struggle with that and many people's lives I'd been involved in. In fact, even interestingly enough, and there's a story in this in sobriety, when my boss back in 1979 first asked me to go to treatment, I battled him over it. And that was on a Thursday, as I remember, and I told him that there was this couple that I had to marry on the Saturday. And after I married them, well, then I would go off to treatment. And he'd say, I think they love you more if you go today, you know. Well, I never did show up for their wedding. Obviously, I went off to treatment. But sometimes I wondered afterwards when I was supposed to be drawing up my list of all persons I had harmed and become willing to make amends to them and go make amends to them. I didn't know where they lived or what had happened. Did they even get married on the day they were supposed to get married and all that stuff? That was 1979. I'm at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1993. Fourteen years later. Down the bayou in the same group that used to grow in love and tolerance because I used to be there. And Joe said, you need to come back because we want to see if you've gotten any way better. You know, come back and visit at our speakers meeting. So I did, and as soon as I opened my mouth, of course, I said, now I've got a grey beard and I'm a lot lighter than 260 pounds. And when I opened my mouth, I saw these two women at the meeting kind of move. And I kind of filed it, but then didn't think any more of it. And after the meeting and people gathering around, this young lady came up to me and said, do you remember me? Oh, God, I used to hate that question. <laughs> In sobriety, I'd feel very vulnerable, you see. Do you remember me? You know, because my parameter was anything under the age of 85. No, no, no. But, I mean, it used to be kind of scary. And I tried to remember in the fog who she was, and I couldn't. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't. And she looked at me, and she said, my name is such and such. And she said, you were supposed to marry me and my husband 14 years ago. And you never showed up for my wedding and my day went up in smoke and it was ruined. And ever since I have hated you. But I want you to know that I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous two weeks ago. I picked up a desire chip and I want you to know that I understand. I don't deserve any of that. It's only God's goodness through you. But I came to the point with all of that and happy memories and everything, I had to move on because I couldn't continue fighting it and remain anyway serene. And I made the decision to move on. 
and leave the ministry. And basically, I love that form of ministry, but I just couldn't find a home in it anymore for me. That's all about me. I couldn't find a home in it. In the meantime, my sponsor asked me to go back to school. He must have seen some writing on the wall. God had consulted with him again, and kind of they'd mapped out the future together for me. And my sponsor said, I think you need to go back to school, and I did. I went back to Tulane and got my master's in social work there. Lived in the French Quarter for two years. Wonderful experience, sober. Some wonderful, wonderful people. Those of you who do not know the French Quarter, there are 8,000 people who live in it. It's a community unto itself. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful community. Tremendous diversity of people, which appealed to me, the radical. And in the meantime, I remember being at the Mid-South Young People's Conference of Alcoholics Anonymous in Shreveport, Louisiana. What year was that? 1991. Thank you. And I was speaking the Sunday morning, something similar to this. Hopefully I am a little better by God's grace since then. And there, among others, there was a lady came up to me after the meeting. Now she didn't say, do you remember me? But we got to talking. And she told me that she'd felt very conflicted in her own journey. She was raised in the Baptist tradition and felt very conflicted. But because of where I was in my journey, she felt that God was giving her some responses. And we kept corresponding. And then over time, our relationship changed. And and after I decided to move on from the ministry, our relationship changed even more. And we married August 19th, 1993. Her name is Lane. She's from Tupelo, Mississippi. That's the other reason I'm in Tupelo. She hates it when I say this. She will listen to this tape later. She will not speak to me maybe for two days. But I do remember, and I'm the alcoholic, I do remember that before we married, she told me that she believed the man was the head of the household, and I'm still waiting. Okay. And she is now 41 years old. She attended her first meeting of Al-Anon, the Al-Anon family group, when she was 24. Way, way back. God knew what he was doing. She's a gift in my life. We married, we moved from Tupelo to Lafayette, Louisiana, where I worked for a few years. I decided we were not going to have children because I felt I was too old. I was scared to death was the truth. Because someone told me that if you ever have a child, you will learn what it is to be unselfish in a hurry. And for an alcoholic to be unselfish, the idea didn't seem attractive to me. So I decided we were not going to have children. And my wife tells me that basically over time she kind of came around within her heart to maybe being okay with that. And then God took it out of our hands. And our daughter Bridget Ashling was born on September 23rd, 1994. Bridget, she's named after her Irish grandmother, and her middle name, Ashling, means beautiful dream. And then in case I did not get the message from God, November 14th, 1996, our son, Colm Lachlan, was born. All I did was show up. (laughs) Where's the sign? Not true. No, anyway, okay. Um, February that's two years ago yeah last month two years ago I moved back to Tupelo from Lafayette Louisiana 
in the interim, things were a little strained. When I made the decision to move on, my Irish Catholic mother had a real tough time with that decision. She was raised a very traditional Roman Catholic. She invested everything in me as she saw it. And here I was, I left the church. I married a Protestant and she was divorced. Three strikes. You're out. For about three years, my mother could not acknowledge me. Could not acknowledge my wife. Could not acknowledge our daughter, her granddaughter, Bridget. She went into a deep depression. My sponsor would tell me, Malachi, you used to be very glib. You would say very simply that you respected everyone's religious beliefs. Now you've got an opportunity to respect your mother's. Because this is what she believes. She believes you turned your back on God. Because God is Catholic. I did what he told me to do, which was to write to her. Whether or not we got a response back was not the point. That I would call her. And when I would call her, she would talk, but I'd invite her to speak to Lane, and she'd say, no, I'm not ready for that. Could I put Bridget on the phone? No, that's okay. But you carried me. My instinct was to get even and to wound But you carried me. Three years ago this month, I'd open heart surgery. My wife tells me the day after I'd open heart surgery, the phone rang in our home in Broussard. She picked up the phone and she heard this voice saying, This is Bridie McCool. Is there anything I can do for you? God's grace. I don't know how God works. All I know is that he works. My time schedule, I guess not. God works. And the relationship gradually thawed, and then I wanted to go over to Ireland, and my sister would tell me, no, the time's not right yet. Uh -uh. So I hadn't seen my mother in almost seven years. She had not met my wife. She had not met Bridget or Colin. And I decided early last year it's time to go over because my mother now is ailing. She's going downhill. She had what they thought was, um, well, she had heart trouble, but they also thought she had arthritis for years. And finally they discovered that she had bone cancer for three years. But she wouldn't complain about it. She was the old school and offered it up to God and said it was arthritis. We decided to go over. So in May, this past May, Lane and I and the kids flew to Ireland and my mother was in hospital at the time. Went to visit her in the hospital and just to watch my mother's eyes as the little ones walked into the hospital room. You gave me that. I was able to sit with my mother and go down memory lane over the next two weeks. And I was able to ask her forgiveness for the hearts that I had created. And it wasn't about you didn't talk to us and all that stuff. That's my mother's stuff. But you were able to give me the opportunity to look at where I was. 
And I asked her forgiveness and she said, I do, son. And we'd visit every day. And I knew she was going downhill, but she'd have good days. And we'd sit and I'd sometimes drift off asleep and then she'd just jerk me and she'd say, you paying me mind? Still in control. Almost 80. Then June 10th came around. We're supposed to fly back here to the States June 11th. June 10th came around and my wife said, maybe you suggest to your mom you might like to stay over. So I said to my mom that evening of June 10th, Mom, I'll stay over a few days if you want. And she looked at me and she said, don't be ridiculous. You have a life, you have a wife, you have a practice. You go take care of your business and God will take care of my business. My mother was a tough old bird. She told my wife when a day my wife visited out of my hearing, she said, Lane, I need to tell you something. You are never the problem. He was the problem. He's an alcoholic. I can't disagree. But that evening of June 10th, I said, Mom, okay. If that's what you want. We were quiet for a while. I looked at my mom after she said go. And I said, well, Mom, I guess we'll meet in heaven. She said, we will, son. I said, I'd like your blessing. She reached under the blankets in her hospital bed and she pulled out her Lord's holy water. Good Irish Catholic mother that she is. Dipped her finger in and put the cross on my forehead and said, Go with God, son. That was the last thing she said to me. Came back here June 11th on the way. My wife said, you'll soon be going back. June 15th, I got into my office that Monday morning. And my wife called and said, your sister called to say your mother had gone home to God. I never thought of taking a drink. God lifted that obsession many years ago. I flew back for the funeral. My sister described my mother's closing day, and I need to tell you this because of, I suppose, how God works. And how a family that's affected by alcoholism on all sides can still walk together with their God only by his grace. My mother had another crisis that Monday, June 15th. They called my sister. She teaches nursing in Dublin. And the cardiology unit where my mother was for a number of weeks, about half of the staff my sister had either trained, taught, or supervised at some stage. So they kind of looked out for her and took extra good care of us with the coffee and the sandwiches and all that stuff just appearing. And they were there that day and they called my sister and they said, your mother's having another crisis. My sister got there. They wanted to continue working on her. My sister said, oh no, let her have some dignity. She said, I'll talk with her. And the staff gathered around. My sister told me, she sat with my mother and said, Mom, it's okay to go. She said, my mom just kept looking at her silently. And my sister said, would you like me to turn off the machine? She said, my mom nodded. Came back and sat down beside the bed and 
Then finally my sister said, Mom, Jesus is waiting for you. And she said, my mom just smiled, took two breaths, and was gone. Do I deserve any of that? I know today, when I think back, what my mother used to say when we were younger and things were chaotic. She would simply say, God is good. She never questioned it. God is good. God is good. That's all I know. And I keep coming to you And I'm active in my home group in Tupelo, Mississippi, which is the 12 and 12. We meet on Tuesday nights at 8 and Fridays at noon. A lot of long-term sobriety in that group. And they love me. And I feel safe there. And I'm home there every time I'm there. And they love me. What do I do today? I just mentioned this for what it's worth. I thought I was going to put the ministry behind me completely. After we married, my wife was raised in the Baptist tradition. It was important for us to find a middle ground. Too much smoke on one end. Too rigid of an interpretation of God on the other end. And I'm just telling you about my journey. We joined the United Methodist tradition in Lafayette, Louisiana. Kind of a middle ground. When we came back to Tupelo, transferred our membership to First United Methodist in Tupelo. Last year I joined the staff there and I'm one of the pastors at First United Methodist in Tupelo. Head up our pastoral counseling center, which is very active. And I've got my own practice. Work a lot with families. I work with children who have been assaulted sexually and abandoned and neglected and Work with adoptive families. Work with couples because I enjoy a good fight. (laughs) The Al-Anon family group has grown somewhat. I'm not saying directly because of moi, but many family members come to visit with me in my practice to talk about him. (laughs) And over time, I suggest there's a place for you. And some say yes. I just show up. God directs the traffic. All I can tell you this morning, my friends, is thank you so much for loving me. I love you.